Um, welcome to Beth Adonai in our 10 o'clock um, teaching. I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your teacher this morning or your facilitator. And um, as I say pretty much every time I come here, the Torah is taught each and every Shabbat on the each and every Shabbat according to James, the book of James. So our James says in Acts 15. So that's why I like to teach on the Torah portion. And this morning we're going to, um, we have a double, Torah a double Torah portion. It's the end of the book of Numbers, the end of the book of Bamidbar this morning. So we're going to cover both uh, Matot and Masay. So let's begin as we should always begin with a, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven, who created everything, everything we see, Father, on a daily basis, all your creation is all around us. And we thank you so much for your word that you've given us through your prophets. And we thank you for your son, Yeshua, and the gifts that you've given us to know you, the way that uh, you've given us to know you. Father, I pray that this morning this, these words will be pleasing to you and that they will articulate meaning to the ones that hear it so that they may draw nearer to you and they may understand you for who you are and understand your will in their lives. Be with us as we go through this Shabbat. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right. So um, the first uh, part of our Torah portion is metot or matot which is from the book of Numbers, chapter 32 through 3242. And I should, uh, and sometimes I fail to do this, but whenever I put these things together, I use a lot of resources. And to avoid plagiarism, I, I need to identify who I use because uh, some of these words are not my words. Daniel Lancaster, I use him a lot in his FFOZ Torah Clubs 1 and 5. Uh, today, I actually are going to use Baal, Hakarim Humash, and the Art Scroll Humash um, for, you know, the material that I'm, that I'm covering today. Numbers 30 discusses the laws of vows and oaths. Numbers 31 tells the story of Israel's war with Midian. Numbers 32 relates the story of how the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh came to inherit the land that was east of the Jordan. I like to do a practical, uh, oh, at least I have the last couple of weeks done a pra practical uh, um, life thing of Torah. Well, today it's kind of covered in the Torah with the vows and the oaths. The way this Torah portion begins is and matot actually means tribes. That's what, what, it, what, uh, what the Hebrew word is translated into in English. Then Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel. He said, here is what Adonai has ordered. When a man makes a vow to Adonai or formally obligates himself by swearing an oath, he is not to break his word, but is to do everything he said he would do. So, why does this passage, and it goes on to, to list out details of vows and oaths in that first uh, introduction to this week's Torah portion. So why does this 
passage come at this particular place in the Torah? And the reason I say that is because from the end of the Parsha Balak, God commanded the Israelites to smite or to, to basically destroy Midian. Before going to battle, Moses conducted a census. Well, we, we learned when we studied that Torah portion that that census was to, uh, for military reasons, to determine how many men he had for war, to plan for his war. But after the census, one would expect that he would continue, it would continue on and there would be a narration of the war with Midian. But instead, the Torah digresses. And it tells of how Moses will divide the land of Israel. So he used the census to determine how he was going to divide the land of Israel. And then right after that, they go through the count of the Levites. And, and we learned um, why that was a couple of weeks ago. Then we hear the story of my vac uh, vocabulary-challenged name of Zelophehad's daughters, which leads to the passage of the laws of inheritance of the land. God then reasserted to Moses that he, that he, Moses, would not enter the Holy Land, such as Moses asked. So when, when you know, Moses was informed of that, he asked for God to appoint a successor to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, and God appointed Joshua. God then proceeded to enumerate the daily Sabbath and festival offerings. These are all the things that were happening ever since the end of the Parsha of, of Balak, which was basically last week in the Parsha of Pincus. After this, we would expect that God would... would uh, or the Torah would go to the battle of Midian. But no, rather today it begins with this passage of personal vows instead of going straight to the narrative of the war of Midian. This shows us the importance that God puts on the issuance of your lips. Your words should always be chosen wisely. The Torah introduces a chapter which upon reflection gives a person the right to do something that heretofore could only be done by God, which was to create a holocaustic status. By pronouncing the sort of vow or oath set forth in this passage, a person is given the power to invoke the Hebrew word nader, or a vow or oath. ain't working now. There we go. Thereby placing himself or others upon objects of his choice, a status equivalent to that of the command of Torah. A nadir is so strong that a person violating it can suffer the court-imposed penalty of lashes. What is the difference between oaths and vows? An oath, which the Hebrew word is Shavuah is a solemn and formal declaration or promise, typically appealing to a higher source or authority, such as a deity or a thing held sacred as a proof of the veracity of this oath. The person who making the oath claims that God is my witness sometimes. The Bible also assumes that a false oath in God's name 
would bring down divine punishment on the lying man. A character in the biblical text might make an oath to the effect that of, may the Lord deal with me, be it so severely, if I do such and such. Abraham and Abimelech sealed their covenant with one another by taking an oath. Abraham's servant took an oath to find a wife for Isaac. In several places, God promised an oath to give the land of Israel to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People do oaths to prove their honesty in a matter of dispute. The Talmud discusses oaths at great length and even devotes an entire tractate to the subject, and that tractate is entitled Shavuot, oaths, the same word. Originally, a vow or a nadir seems to be particular, a particular type of oath by which a person bound himself to bring sacrifices or dedicate something to the temple. Usually, the person stated the vow conditionally. If such and such happens, then I will bring such and such. A person at sea in a dangerous storm might vow, if the Lord will rescue me from the storm, then I will sacrifice a peace offering. The Psalms frequently refer to the paying of one's vows by bringing sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 716 even introduced a type of peace offering called a vow, and the name of the offering was a nadir, the word for vow. Another type of vow substitutes a personal prohibition in the place of a sacrifice. For example, if the Lord will rescue me from the storm, then I will quit drinking coffee. Without a temple today, one cannot vow to bring a sacrifice but the coffee example would stand. In Judaism, the meaning of the word nadir expanded to include any declaration that a person makes, promising to do something. It included any obligation or prohibition a person might place upon himself. The Nazarite vow of number six provides a good example of a biblical vow. The Talmud dedicates a tractate for vows, which is called Nedarim, to the discussion of the subject of vows. The matter to which a person swears, whether to perform some act or prohibit himself from something, is called an isar. The verb asar means to bind something. An isar is something bound on a person. A person makes a vow, a person making a vow binds himself with an isar, whether he has bound himself from drinking coffee or obligating himself to bring a sacrifice. It must be understood that there is no English equivalent to the word nadir. For lack of anything closer, it is commonly translated as vow a word which means to pledge to do something. A simple pledge, however, though a Jew must keep his work, word, is not the subject of this passage. A vow or an oath 
is an oral promise to which a person voluntarily obligates himself. Vows and oaths have not disappeared from our world. Can you think of an oath or a vow in today's world? The one that comes to mind the most is when a woman and a man get married. They exchange vows. Vows are like an extra solemn promise for which we expect God to hold us accountable. A vow is understood as a promise, an obligation, or a prohibition that a person declares upon himself or herself. Taking an oath or a vow in the name of God is a risky enterprise. The Lord wants us not to swear falsely by his name so as to profane the name of your God, as he says in Leviticus 19.2. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, Exodus 27. God says if a person takes his name in vain, he will not leave that person unpunished. That is why Yeshua warned his, warned his disciples against taking needless vows or oaths. In Numbers 33, 30 chapter 3, it goes into detail about a, um, a woman being able to have her vow or oath annulled or nulled by the husband or father, which is interesting that, uh, that the woman has this, this uh, ability to have her vow or oath nullified, whereas a, um, a man does not. The Torah warns us not to break our vows, but then it offers these possible exceptions. A vow made by a girl of marriageable age, but still under her father's authority, is subject to being revoked by her father. A wife's vows and oaths are subject to her husband's veto. Why would a husband or a father presume to annul a vow that his wife or daughter had taken? The Torah is concerned about the possibility of a rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, as it says in Numbers 36. The idea is that the man is looking out for the best interest of the woman for whom he is responsible. These laws say a lot about a man's headship in his home. The Torah assumes that a man should be head of his household. This is not um, Shabbatism or, or um, domination. A husband's authority does not justify bullying his wife's or daughters. The apostles are equally insistent that men should love their wives, treating them with dignity and respect as equal partners. Nevertheless, the biblical family model is clearly patriarchal. The ability for a husband or father to annul a vow taken by his wife or daughter does not indicate general inferiority of women. Men are able to make equally bad or foolish vows as women. Women must be protected from the legal ramifications of a wrongful vow. This perspective is based upon the general domestic role given women in the Torah. 
The making of the home is the highest importance, and this responsibility falls to the woman. God is a God of families. Wrongful vows may, might jeopardize the home. The priority of wives and mothers is functionality of the home. Therefore, focus on maintaining the home by women is extremely important to both families and the community. Yeshua and his sages argued that a person must keep his vows even when he undertakes them without an oath that directly invoke God's name. The sages pointed out that the Torah expresses this rule in both a negative and positive formulation. He shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth, Numbers 33. Therefore, breaking one's word violates two commandments. Not to break one's word, even undertaking without an oath, which is a, a negative commandment, 157, and to fulfill all oral commitments, which is positive commandment, 94. So it's two commandments in one. The broad scope of the commandment is based upon a related passage in Deuteronomy that says, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, Deuteronomy 23, 23. As a precaution against inadvertently placing oneself under a vow, Traditional Jews often hedge their statements with this term, God willing. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? We, we had um, a wonderful lady in our Torah club every week, whenever she would leave, she would say, we'll see you all next week, God willing. It just means without taking a vow. For example, like, like I said, I'll be here next week, God willing, if I'm feeling better. A person states his intentions without taking a vow upon themselves. The commandment regarding keeping one's vows, oaths, and utterances teaches us about the nature of God, the Holy One, blessed be he. If he commands us to be true to our every vow, even those words that we might speak casually, then he's certainly true to his own word. Once he has spoken, he will not transgress his utterance or reverse it or abolish it. His integrity is absolute. Yeshua instructed his disciples not to swear at all, neither taking oaths or vows. Josephus records that the Essene community swore off swearing altogether. They insisted on such a high level of integrity that their simple word was as binding as an oath or vow. In the late first century, the Jewish historian recorded the Essene community swore off this swearing altogether. James, the brother of Yeshua, says in James 5.12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Obviously, some vows, even today, such as marriage, are necessary. And Yeshua's prohibition should not be regarded as a ban on, like, contracts or you making a promise to somebody or anything like that. Instead, 
His disciples are to be a people of such immense integrity that our simple yes is equivalent to an oath taken in the name of God. We are to be people of such integrity that no further verification is needed from us other than a yes or a no. Numbers 35, why does the father have the right to revoke vows of an unmarried daughter or marriageable age, but not the vows of an unmarried son of the same age? The Torah regards a son of marriageable age as autonomous, but a daughter remains under her father's authority until she is married. Daughters are in training to become keepers of the family. Therefore, in anticipation of their important roles, Daughters were to be guarded from putting themselves in a bad position by committing a bad vow. The Torah recognizes the special relationship a father shares with his daughters. A father has the same authority over his daughters that he has over his wife. While unmarried, she is to remain under his protection. Why would a father or a husband presume to annul a vow that his wife or daughter had taken? The, store, the Torah specifically has in view the, the regards as a rash statement of her lips which she has bound herself. The idea supposed that a man had the best interest of the woman in mind. He carefully considers the vows and decides whether to let them stand on the basis of his best judgment. He should not exercise this judgment just to abuse his power. Instead, be careful to consider if the woman is a rash utterance or if she made a serious vow. I covered a lot of that already, I think. The biblical position on family hierarchy is unanimous. Rather than trying to bend the plain meaning of the Bible, we should ask ourselves this. Why do we have a problem with masculine headship in families? It's perhaps because men throughout history have abused that authority. We know the endless examples of bad husbands and fathers who have lorded over wives and children. Such a man is no more biblical than a woman in open defiance of her husband. The Bible models a husband who loves his wife. Paul tells us that men are to emulate Messiah in their love for their wives. This is a sacrificial love. It allows no bullying. It does not force submission. Instead, a biblical husband nourishes and cherishes his wife. One cannot cherish a person and at the same time disregard her wishes, opinions, her preferences, and her dignity. Messiah-like headship calls for servitude, servanthood. Yeshua considers heavy-handed authority and lording over others as something one might expect of idolaters, but unworthy of his disciples. Notice that the apostolic writers never commanded husbands to make your wives submit to you. The mitzvah of submitting to one's husband belongs solely to the wife. It is her mitzvah and not her husband's. We have trouble whenever we try to force the Bible to fit our worldview, our Western worldview, our 20th century Western worldview. God's word is not very flexible. 
and that's still true today. And we try so, so many um, times to fit God's word into situations and bend it to justify things, you know. But that's not, that's not what the word's about. We have better results when we change ourselves to fit the Bible's worldview. In the Torah world, a young man should not even consider courting a girl without her father's consent, her full consent and blessing. The same should be true of a daughter courting a, 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 you know, a, a young man. Numbers 31.2. God told Moses, finally, to go to war with the Midianites. It was the last task God had for, for them to do, for, for Moses to do, before he died. The issue of divinely sanctioned war raises many conflicts in our minds because it seems like the, it seems to soil the hands of God, who is the source of life and not the source of death. Even more difficult for us is to accept the manner in which whole societies are slated for destruction, including women and children. How can a loving God allow such cruelty? And how is it fair that women and children, who generally had little participation in government aspects in the ancient Near East, should become military targets in a national warfare? Why did God want the Israelites to take vengeance on the Midianites? The Midianite women had snared Israel and enticed them into idolatry through the council of Balaam. Some of you, a lot of y'all say Balaam. I guess it's just a matter in your pronunciation. In doing so, Israel brought a curse upon themselves. The Midianites brought this curse upon Israel by their own doing. And the Abrahamic promise was thus invoked. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Midian was completely defeated. Her kings were slain along with adult men, including Balaam, who had spearheaded this curse against Israel. Here's some pictures, some paintings of that that I was able to pull up. Hopefully you can see those. This raises another question. What about the Moabites? The Moabites also had their daughters entice the men of Israel into committing idolatry. It was, in, it was in the scripture that we read. Why are they not destroyed? God would not allow Israelites to go to war with the Moabites, even though they were guilty of the same sin against his people. The Moabites had a legitimate concern and grievance against Israel. The host of Israel had entered their land and were camping in their territory. The Midianites, however, had no legitimate interest at stake in the fight with Israel. The Midianites were not guilty, were not only guilty of the affair of Peor, they were also guilty of triangulation. Triangulation happens when a person gets involved in a quarrel between other people. It's not their quarrel, but they get involved in it. It happens when you pick up someone else's grievance 
and carry a grudge on their behalf. By imposing oneself in a situation that is not really your business, you needlessly place yourself in harm's way. Early Jewish sources, including the Targum Yonatan and the Midrash Rabbah, tell a fanciful version of the fight with Balaam. According to the folktale, Balaam employed his sorcery to attempt escape. He flew into the sky. Pincus used the power of the divine name to pursue him into the air. Pincus flew faster than Balaam. He showed him the golden head plate with these words, Holy to the Lord. When Balaam saw the name of God engraved on the plate, his magic failed him, and he fell to the ground. Ironically, apostolic lore tells a similar story in the conquest, conquest between Simon Peter and Simon Magnus in Rome. Now, that is just a, uh, a story, you know, but it, it, it appears in the Talmud. The thing is, is we don't get any details about the death of Balaam, how he actually died. So they have to fill in the blanks a little bit with these stories. Moses spared the virgin daughters of the Midianites and gave them to the men of the army as servants or wives. If as servants, they were subject to the laws of fair treatment for slaves. If as wives, they were subject to the laws of the captured women. The Israelites served God, and even in war, they were compassionate in how they dealt with, uh, with their spoils. Numbers 31:19. The army returned with great quantity of spoils, plunder, flocks, and captives. Mo Moses had the plunder and captives divided among the men who had risked their lives in the battle and the rest of the assembly of Israel. A tribute also went to the priesthood. Neither the army nor the spoils could enter the camp until they were purified. The army had returned from battle in a state of ritual unfitness due to corpse contamination. Numbers 31, 49 through 50 tells us, after the battle, the commanders over the army counted their men to measure their losses. They were startled to realize that not a single Israelite had died. They recognized that God had performed a miracle for them. The army raised an offering of golden vessels from their plunder to give to the tabernacle as a remembrance and to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. The word atonement is used here in the sense of a ransom that was paid for life. They, they, had, they lost no life. The soldiers realized that God had spared their lives and they wanted to give a gift in exchange for this miracle. The Torah portion of Matot ends with this uh, description east of the Jordan, which is Numbers 32.2. Numbers 32 deals with the settlement of the land east of the Jordan. The, the Gadites and the Reubenites wanted to take the land that had been conquered from the Amorites as their inheritance. The expectation of Moses and the rest of the Israelites, however, was that all the tribes would settle in the promised land west of the Jordan. But Reuben and Gad wanted to settle in these real nice fertile lands 
east of the Jordan because they felt like they're good balance yet. <laughs> they wanted to settle in the land east of the Jordan because of the um, friendliness to their crops and to their, uh, their sheep. This was a selfish request to inherit land for personal gain. The Parsha's obvious teaching gives us insight in the whole matter of how a community should work. When the sages teach that the tribes of Reuben and Gad were the first to be exiled, they mean that they were the first to reside outside of the land of Israel. The first regions within the land that were exiled were those of Zebulon and Naphtali, but since Reuben and Gad never established their presence in the land, they were considered as exiled from the very beginning. The tribes of Reuben and Gad looked at the land with entirely materialistic eyes. They did not consider it valuable in and of itself, but only in relationship to how it could benefit them. Since the land in Transjordan seemed more suitable for raising their many flocks, it was superior in their eyes to the land in which Hashem had promised them by the oath of their covenant. The Midrash considers the sin of the tribes of Reuben and Gad as that of separating themselves from their people, for it was on this basis that they were actually exiled first. While the reason for separating as far as Reuben and Gad were concerned was greed, the sages teach that the separation from community, even when it was from pure motives, is an intolerable sin. The very existence of Israel depends upon community. Any community will only be as strong as the commitment of individuals to the welfare of each other within the community. And you have to be within the community. You know, you can't be outside the community because when you're outside, you are not in touch with the community. So that ended our, um, our Torah portion of uh, Matot. But like I said, we have a double Torah portion today. And the, um, the second Torah portion is Maseh. And Maseh means journeys. Maseh is Numbers 33, 1 to the end of Numbers, chapter 36, 13. So this ends our Torah portion. Not only does it end our Torah portion, but it pretty much ends the narrative that began in Genesis. Because Deuteronomy, all, Deuteronomy is, is Moses basically teaching the children of Israel before they go into the land. So um, once we end this book, now for us, our Torah cycle doesn't end for another 10 or 12 weeks, right? But the actual a action that was going on in the Torah ends this week. The final reading of Numbers settles several last-minute details. In it, we find a list of encampments from Egypt to the plains of Moab. We also find instructions for apportioning the land, as well as the specifics required from the borders of the land. While explaining the land and its borders, Moses introduced the laws of the cities of refuge and more inheritance laws. In some respects, 
the conclusion of the books of Numbers concludes the Torah. Those of y'all that have taken Rabbi Rene's class through the years, um, he, 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 he always says, you know, they were never supposed to write the book of Deuteronomy. If they hadn't, if the spies hadn't done what they had, had done, they, they were ready to enter the land, so there would have been no need for the book of Deuteronomy. The end of the book of Numbers, as I said, represents the end of the continuous narrative of the Torah that began in Genesis with the creation of the universe. Deuteronomy 1 begins an entirely different kind of book. Deuteronomy primarily consists of a transcript of a long sermon delivered by Moses at the end of his life. The end of the book of Numbers concludes this continuous documentary of the events recorded by Moses. Numbers 33.1. In this chapter, the Torah summarizes the entire route followed by the uh, Israelites in the, in the, uh, in, in, since the Exodus, from the Exodus until they stood poised to cross the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. The list of journeys emphasizes God's compassion because it shows that notwithstanding the decree that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years, the people enjoyed extended periods of rest. In all, there were 42 encampments over a span of 40 years. That would average right at one a year, traveling once a year. The first 14 were encampments before the mission of the spies. And the last eight were in the actual 40th year after Aaron's death. Thus, during the 38 intervening years, there were only 20 journeys. So that makes it one journey every two years. God instructed Moses to list the journeys and encampments of Israel's 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. What was the reason for the long list of encampments? By mentioning each of the locations, the Torah recalls all the places God had performed miracles for the children of Israel, and more importantly, how he had provided for their needs. Rashi notes that the list of journeys demonstrates that Israel did not spend 40 years constantly wandering from place to place. He counts only 20 journeys in the 38 years between the rejection of the land and Aaron's death. Although God had made a decree that they would enter and travel the wilderness, you should not suppose that they wandered and traveled continuously from one place to another for all 40 years and that they had no rest. This last reading of the book of Numbers has an entire chapter dedicated to chronicling the journeys and encampments of the Israelites in their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. The Parsha derives its name, Journeys, Massey, from this. From this. Originally, Numbers 33 appears to have existed as like a separate document, perhaps a journey of the encampments document. The story from Exodus chapter 12 through chapter 32, Exodus chapter 32, presents, well, through actually through uh, Numbers 32, presents a more detailed account of the travels of the Israelites in the wilderness. The list in Numbers 33 summarizes those travels. This gives us two accounts of the travels. For the most part, the two accounts agree. In some places, however, they appear to be omissions of the details. The narrative account from Exodus 12 to Numbers 32 has less interest in recording the encampments than in conveying the story. 
It aims to preserve the stories that introduce God to Israel and in such give those stories to us. These stories demonstrate God's sufficiency and demonstrate Israel's waywardness. It provides a framework in which to establish God's commandments and provide illustrations of actual carrying out of the commandments and establishing what we could probably term as case law. The narrative of Exodus 12 through 32 omits most of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Numbers 33, Chronicle has little concern with narrative, but very much concern to actually identify all the places of encampment. There we go. There were 42 of them. The list of encampments between Egypt and the Promised Land symbolically alludes to the journey from exile to final redemption. The exodus from Egypt corresponds to the death and resurrection of Yeshua, who is our Passover lamb. The arrival at the Promised Land corresponds to the end of the age and the dawn of the kingdom. The 42 encampments symbolizes the stages of exile in our journey to the Messianic era. Numbers 33:53, the Lord told the Israelites to prepare to cross the Jordan and enter the land of Canaan. He warned them to drive out the Canaanites and to destroy their idols and places of worship. After conquering the land, the Israelites were to divide among the tribes the land. They were to divide the land among the tribes. The land of Israel is the land that God commanded the Jewish people to conquer and possess. The Jewish people can have no real homeland other than the, than the one that God bequeathed to them. And the Bible makes them responsible to be wardens of that land. The Jewish people's right to live in Israel and possess the land is challenged by the nations of the world, even today. Global opinion has repeatedly condemned the state of Israel for their occupation of the land. The majority of the Middle East does not recognize Israel's right to exist. The majority of the world does not recognize Israel's rights of proprietorship over her territory. Since the days of the apostles, the Jewish people had been scattered all over the world in a continuing exile. The prophets foresaw this exile, and they promised it would come to an end. Today, the land of Israel is home to nearly 5.5 million Jews who have returned to their land from over 100 nations around the world. The Holy Spirit is moving the world to gather his people. The Torah can only be kept in its fullness in the land. There are many commandments in the Bible that do not apply to people living outside of Israel. The best possible place for a Torah keeper is to live in the land of Israel. Numbers 34 sketches the border of Israel, which Joshua was to distribute among the nine and a half tribes who were yet to be settled. The land of Israel is the stage on which the majority of the Bible is played out. In God's book, the land of Israel is of central concern. If it matters to God, it should matter to his children. 
All believers have a special relationship to the land of Israel. It is the cradle of our faith. Our master's feet tread upon its soil and its stones. It is God's holy land in which he placed his city, Jerusalem, and his temple, and he caused his presence to dwell. Numbers 34 defines the borders of the land of Israel. The Bible draws borderlines around the promised land in other passages as well. A careful comparison of all the Bible's descriptions reveals two distinct sets of borders. On the one hand, the Bible describes a larger, more generalized territory. On the other, the Bible describes a smaller, tighter, and more detailed territory. In Exodus 23:31, the Lord gave Moses a similar description of the scope and breadth of the promised land. However, the Lord states up front that this expansion will not happen immediately. Israel will find out her ideal borders little by little. Deuteronomy indicates that territorial enlargement will be contingent upon covenantal covenant obedience. Covenantal obedience, how about that? As Israel walks in faithful obedience to Torah, God grants territorial expansion. Numbers 34 defines a smaller, tighter promised land that does not even include the Transjordan. Maybe we could call this version of the land west of the Jordan as promised land proper. This smaller, more specific description of the land was attainable goal of conquest. Even so, Israel rarely possessed the entire scope. Joshua never conquered all of the land. As Joshua neared the end of his time, a great deal of this territory of Israel that they were supposed to occupy remained unoccupied. Sorry, I hit that. The narrower border even show up in the messianic future. Ezekiel, who often seems partial to the book of Numbers, uses the narrower border describing his version of Israel proper. The two sets of potential borders illustrate that, that expansion is proportional to obedience. The Jewish people have to, the potential to control the entire eastern Mediterranean seaboard. Not even Solomon controlled that much territory. The prophets say that when Messiah comes, he will gather all the people of Israel back to the land of Israel. We await the coming of King Messiah to fulfill the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 and fill out these borders, the larger borders. They um, established cities for the Levites. The Levites were to be spread throughout the people of Israel in order to teach Torah to the whole nation and to serve the liturgical functions. Each tribe was to establish Levitical cities within its territory. The Torah mandated that Israel was to set aside a total of 48 Levitical cities, six of which were to be cities of refuge. And this is kind of a picture of the cities of refuge. I don't know if you can see them or not, but there's little stars that shows you the cities of refuge. And they're really spread out um, centrally to where they were easily accessible to uh, geographically, you know. In Numbers 35, 14, after establishing the borders, 
Moses commanded Joshua and Eleazar to portion out the land among the nine and a half tribes that still needed to be settled. The tribal leaders had the responsibility of dividing the parcel among the clans and the families in their tribes. The names mentioned in this list, with the exception of Caleb, are all new to the Torah. They represent a new breed and a clean state, a clean slate. These are the children of the children of Israel. These are the ones that survived the 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua 21 goes on to list 48 Levitical cities and their location among the tribal territories. The Levites spread throughout the people of Israel in order to teach Torah to the whole nation. Every man was responsible to learn and to teach Torah, but the Lord specifically charged the Levites with the responsibility of teaching Torah to the nation. Since they lived on the public, all the tribes were responsible for supporting the Levites. The Levites could commit their lives to the study of Torah and pursuit of holy matters connected with the sanctuary and the priesthood. I can tell you firsthand, studying Torah takes a lot of time. It's very in-depth, and even if I had 24-7, there's no way I could get into everything there is in Torah every week. And when I'm up here teaching these 10 o'clock Torah things, all I'm doing is scratching the surface. There's tons of, of depth and, and, um, and wisdom within the Torah. So the Levites needed that time to be able to truly understand the Torah, and they needed that time to be able to truly deliver the Torah. The call of discipleship often, often involves the the revocation or the, the, the walking away from earthly pursuits such as career or property. This is not to say that discipleship cannot be reconciled with vocation because I definitely have a job, let me tell you, and I'm sure rabbi does too, both rabbis. My, my mom and himself made a living as a physician, and he was one of the greatest Torah studies or, or Torah sages of all time. Levitical cities were more than just places for Levites to live. They functioned as centers of Torah scholarship and education. This is really cool. The local messianic synagogue serves as the body of Messiah and, and the nation of Israel like a Levitical city in the midst of Israel. Our communities are scattered. Our synagogues are unlike those of other congregations around us. Our role is to teach the ordinances, or better, to teach the Torah. Like the Levites among Israel, we have a ministry, a witness, and an example to those outside the community. A messianic synagogue is an oasis of Torah in a parched land. They are very, very rare. In Atlanta, I don't know how many of y'all know, I mean, most of y'all probably know this anyway, but there's only like two or three in the whole city of Atlanta, which is a city of almost five million people now, or maybe more. Y'all may know that better than me. Six of the Levitical cities were to be designated as cities of refuge, where a person guilty of manslaughter could find asylum. It sounds strange to us because we no longer live in a primitive world, but the tribal customs of blood vendettas and vengeance used to keep the ancient world in check. In the tribal system, if a man was murdered, his next of kin was expected to avenge that murder. The person responsible for a man's death even if it was accidental, could expect to be killed by the dead man's 
near relative. The blood vendetta system of justice made it impossible for a real court of law to conduct a trial, hear witnesses, and determine a person's innocence or guilt. They never made it that far. Therefore, the Torah establishes these cities of refuge in which a person being hunted by a blood adventure could find asylum until there was time to conduct a fair trial. In Numbers 3530, the Torah does not condone the primitive, vigilant, blood vengeance method of justice. A Torah court of law requires a fair trial with at least two eyewitnesses. The Torah requires two witnesses for establishing any legal matter. The standard runs through the whole Bible. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared as two witnesses endorsing Yeshua. That's very important to know. The apostles of Yeshua were all witnesses to his resurrection. Remember, it's two or more. There were 12 of those. Well, 11 at the time. In the Greek, word translated as wit witness is martus. It is the word for which we derive the English word martyr. The word martyr now refers to someone who sacrifices his life for religious convictions, but originally it referred to any witness. Among the early believers in Yeshua, the martyrs were those who testified about their faith. Human life is precious because human beings are made in the image of God. The death of the murderer does not right the wrong but it does satisfy the measure-for-measure measure demands of God's scale of justice. The murderer's death by a court of law is just as much a tragedy as the death of the original victim. In God's justice system, the murderer is therefore responsible for two lives, his victims and his own. Matot lists commandments numbers 406 through 407. There were only two commandments in, um, in Matot of the 613 commandments. Masay lists commandments 408 through 413 of the 613 commandments of the Torah. So as we finish Exodus, or um, Numbers, Bamidbar, we only have, we still have 200 commandments to go, which means the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, has got 200 of the 613 commandments listed in it. Very important, the most quoted book by Yeshua in the apostolic scriptures is the book of Deuteronomy. So, here we are at the end of this book, and the people of Israel are now poised to enter the land, they're in, to enter the promised land. Now, of course, this didn't take place until the book of Joshua. But when they enter the promised land, what's leading them? The ark. God's, they're, they're carrying God's ark into the promised land, leading them in, into the promised land. So God's word is leading them into the, into the promised land. And who is the family of Levites that carry the ark? Y'all been through so much tort. Well, at least uh, a lot of you have been with, with Rabbi Rene, and y'all study this, I'm sure. There was only one family that was allowed to, uh, of Levites to carry the ark. They all had their, uh, their assignments, right? It was the family of Kohath. As we come to the end of a book of Torah, Jewish tradition has a, a, uh, a, a basically a uh, 
it, I really call it a prayer. You can call it a chant, but a prayer. And how many of y'all do this when you come to the book, end of a book of Torah as a group? So let's, let's, if, if, you, if you know the words, let's, let's, let's say, it, say it together. Kazak? Kazak? Vini oh, I'm sorry, I had. Be strong, be strong, and be strengthened. So, um, thank you all very much for coming and for listening to this. Um, the uh, the Torah, as I, as I said at the beginning, it should should be taught each and every Shabbat in a synagogue, because um, that's what we're here for. The Torah is the Word of God. The Torah is um, is how you get to know God. God gave us this Torah through his, um, through his word, through his prophets, and through his son. So let's end this with a, uh, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this glorious day that you've given us for this summer. Thank you for, um, for this month of Av and for the lessons that are in this month. This, it's very sorrowful what we will... Um, what we will recognize on the ninth of Av that's coming up, Father, but it's it's there for a reason. Your your patterns, your months, your Torah that goes in cycles is giving us a pattern. It's giving us your hints as to your pattern of salvation. That when each of us take hold of that, Father, we will experience that with you. Father, be with us as we go into the world after our Shabbat today that we may show you in us in all that we do so that others will recognize you in us and that we may be able to bring others to you. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.